All right. Hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat, but only once you've met someone. All right. Good morning. Hi, guys. We can do this. Good morning. Good to see you guys. So glad you're here. Uh, if you are new, welcome. Welcome to The Exchange. My name is Josiah. I would just love to meet you after and say hi uh, in case this is your first time. Do me a favor and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along. But Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's the idea too. If you're planning on using your phone, take a Bible today just because I want you to do something. Some pens around, as you can see. So grab a paper Bible, just because you'll see why. All right, Nehemiah chapter 9. So uh, let me give you guys a quick little update about what's going on with the school here and with our location. Many of you might know this, many of you might not know this. Um, We used to meet at Quiet Waters Elementary School, about a year and a half. We had to meet here, here at Hammock Point, for the last like nine, ten weeks, I think now, because uh, the school is getting its roof and its AC remodeled, so they're redoing that. So here's kind of the plan, just so you know what's going on, like what's happening, what's going on, wh- how long are we going to be here? Next Sunday is supposed to be our last Sunday here at Hammock Point. That's August 4th. We're supposed to be back August 11th at Quietwaters Elementary, and I'm saying supposed to because they're still working on the AC and the roof. Um, I wish I had more of a concrete, we will be back August 11th. We're praying for that. We're planning for that, but it's possible we could be here August 11th. So all that to say is we're here, Hammock Point, next week. All right, next week I'll let you know where we will be August 11th. Keep that in prayer. Um, We hope that they can just finish construction on time. We can move our stuff in. We're hoping that we still have closet space at Quiet Waters, because that's important, or might have to get long-term storage. So keep all of that in prayer. We will be here next week, August 4th, still in Nehemiah. August 11th, hopefully we'll be back at Quiet Waters Elementary. Make sense? Agree? Sound good? Cool. So make sure you guys are aware of what's happening. Let me catch up to speed. All right, so we're in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We started this book as soon as we got here to Hammock Point Elementary, kind of for the summer. Here's the idea of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was a guy who had a holy ambition. We're calling this series Holy Ambition because I think in, in many ways, ambition has only been viewed negatively because of things like selfish ambition, which the Bible does condemn. Selfish ambition has been used to do a lot of harm. Uh, It's caused a lot of just pain in families and marriages and nations. Selfish ambition is condemned, but there is something that we see in scriptures like holy ambition. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. David's ambition was to expand the borders in Israel. Solomon's ambition was to rebuild the temple. There's a holy ambition. Our desire is not to be those who fear ambition, but to embrace a God-centered ambition something beyond us. Uh, I would love for us, as I say every week, I really do believe God is stirring within us, and I hopefully within individuals here, this desire to, I want to do something for God that's bigger than myself, that God is already doing, and joining him in the work. I want to be ambitious for the kingdom. We do want to be a church that plants other churches. We want to be a church that raises up other leaders and sends them out. We want to be ambitious for the kingdom of God, and hopefully it's an ambition that is holy. We're praying that God purifies those motives and those desires, that everything we do is by him and for him. And so we see with Nehemiah, 
and in this book, this I- the idea of holy ambition. So here's where we're at. Nehemiah, here's about Jerusalem. Walls are broken down. He's brokenhearted. He goes to Jerusalem. He rebuilds the walls. He rebuilds the gates. Uh, we see in Nehemiah 7, he fills the people or fills the city with people. Now that the city's kind of rebuilt, he brings people back in. Here's where we were last week. Last week was so epic to me. Last week, we looked at the, in the middle of a revival. We, we saw the word of God being rediscovered. We saw it being preached, being communicated, being honored. We saw the people hunger for the word. We saw people honor the word. We saw them do the word right then and there. They immediately obeyed God, and then a revival broke out. And we talked about how there's something that happens when people do study God's word, love God's word, apply God's word. This is how revival really seems to always begin any sort of great work or any sort of revival begins from just the word of God. And so here we are now in chapter 9. And if you remember last week in chapter 8, when the word was read, the people wept bitterly. The priests go, do not weep. It's actually the time of year we're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's celebrate. So they celebrate, and now here in chapter 9, they're back to weeping. All right. Now they're back to confessing. So like, hey, celebration's over. Now we're still brokenhearted. And we're going to see here in Nehemiah 9, and if you are taking notes, this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible not just Old Testament. It's a long prayer. The Levites, the priests, in verse 4, they raise their voice and they pray this prayer. And here's what we see. They're retelling Israel's history all the way from creation, Abraham, the Exodus, all the way to the prophets, all the way to their exile. And they're saying, God, we've sinned time and time again and we repent. And this is a beautiful story. It's Israel's like history. And it's this new generation in a sense saying, we want to learn from our mistakes. We want to learn from our parents' mistakes, our forefathers' mistakes, and we want a repentancy change. And this is a long prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And they're just retelling the story of Israel. And there's so much for us to, to take away from this. So here's the idea. Uh, the title today is simply Stories Matter. Stories Matter, which we'll talk about. They're retelling the story of Israel. This is a beautiful honoring of God and his goodness and also just confession of their sin. Now, here's what I want to read really quick. Uh, we read this last week because revival happened with the word of God. And, and Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what we want to do. All right, we're going to read Nehemiah verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1 through 38. So it's going to be a lot of verses. All right, it's going to be a lot. And if you're like me, you'll get to like verse 4, and your mind's going to go somewhere else. Like, he said that name wrong. I know. So I'm going to ask that you kind of bring it back in and focus with me. Here's what I actually do want to do. Uh, so that's why we pass up paper Bibles. You're going to notice this theme, and I'd rather point it out now, and we're going to talk about it. Anytime you see them honoring God, exalting God, praising God, circle the word or the phrase. Just circle it. Anytime you just see the wickedness and ugliness of man, put like a little rectangle around that phrase. All right, I don't know if we have that up here. So you can kind of see that, just to remind yourself. This will go by fast. There's going to be a lot of circling and a lot of rectangling. Does it do it? Does it say it right? What does it say? Yes, okay, why not? So if you see, uh, if you see something like the goodness of God, circle it. You know, if you see something like the wickedness of man, I want you to like put a box around it. All right? So that's why we have your Bibles out. And you're, it's just going to be filled with circles and rectangles. All right, so let's do this. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're giving ourselves to the public reading. It's going to be long. You can do it. Here we go. It's going to start in verse 5, the circling and rectangling. All right. All right. Verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. They're repenting. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins 
and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. The idea is if this is like a 12-hour sunlight day, for three hours they're reading, for three hours they're confessing and worshiping, or possibly six hours they're reading. Either way, it's a lot. All right, so you're like, you can handle a 45-minute message. All right, verse four. Then Joshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, I'm so sad for this guy. <laughs> He's called Bunny. Uh, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the stairs of the, Le- uh, of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So this is their prayer. We're going to see, but there's more. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Hajah, <laughs> Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, oh, I'm so glad we're past that. Here we go. Verse five, here's the prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Remember, circle, rectangle. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all the blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, all the angelic realm, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them. You sustain them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. Start rectangling some stuff. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep. As a stone into the mighty waters, moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and you commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go into the possess, to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but, but they hardened their necks. And in the rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage, but you are God ready to pardon, to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them 
It's something that's worth. And did not withhold your, your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of uh, Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. Verse 24. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of their land that they might do with them as they wish. And they took strong cities and a rich land and, and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations, therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies, who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard them from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they have had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Does your hand hurt from circling and rectiling? Don't stop. There's a lot. I know. Verse 29. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffed their necks, and would not hear. (laughs) You can square the whole thing. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all their troubles seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Nevertheless, our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor do they turn from their wicked works. Verse 36, here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. You guys did it. Did anyone read the whole thing with me? Yeah. Um, we're going to look at the covenant that they're going to write next week, and it's so profound. But first, let's just pray and read, just kind of walk through this great story they just told and prayed and confessed. Let's pray. 
Father, I'm just um, amazed by your faithfulness towards us. That God, when we sin, when we hear your word and do the exact opposite, you still pursue, you still love, you still forgive. Jesus, thank you for this incredible, true story. God, of your faithfulness, despite our wickedness, despite our rebellious heart, despite turning our backs on you, God, you time and time again have pursued us. So we thank you, God. We love you only because you first loved us. And uh, we just ask Jesus that you would just speak to us, that you'd move, that through uh, even just kind of the history of Israel, that we, the church, will just learn today from it. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm sure you've noticed this, but kids, children, little kids, they love to re-watch the same movie over and over again. I don't know when you grow out of this. I don't know why this is. My son can watch a movie and then immediately go, let's watch it again. I'm like, how? They love to rewatch the same movie. Right now, his new movie, he has like a new seasonal movie. It's Toy Story. And sometimes it's just fun to kind of rewatch the old classics, but it gets pretty old pretty fast. And he loves to just rewatch it. And I, I think there's something. It's not that he forgets. I think he just feels everything they feel in the movie. Like the scene where the toys come alive with Sid, if I try to talk to him, because like, he is so in the zone. And like, I'll look at him like, the toys are alive. He's like, the toys are alive. And like, you'll see him like, look at his toy like, this is weird. You know, I think he's just so in it with it. Like, he's just so in the moment. Right now, his two favorite stories, he has like this Jesus storybook Bible. His two favorite stories are David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale. I mean, those are the two stories we're reading time and time again. To the point where like, I have to like mix it up, you know? And I'll be like, Micah, David killed Goliath, but there is the greater than David who killed the ultimate Goliath, and that is death, and his name is Jesus, right? Like, you try to like present it differently. Same with Jonah. I'm like, Jonah was three nights and three days in the belly of the whale. So was the son of man three nights and three days in the belly of the earth. Like, he's like, what are you talking about, dad? But you know, you have to find something that kind of like new or just point it to Jesus ultimately with him and he just wants to hear the same things over and over again and why is that I mean we obviously we love stories because we, we learn a lot from stories stories teach us something stories shape our worldview especially stories that we look at and say these are incredible stories they're not just stories like fairy tales these are true stories of men and women who've seen God move and work and responded in faith and there's something about retelling these stories over and over again there's something about we need, we absolutely need to do this. We can't just remember, we need to retell the story over and over again. So here's what we learned from Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're just going to throw up some thoughts. We're not going to reread every verse, but we're going to kind of go through and talk through like kind of the big picture of this. So here's what we see. Five things we're going to point out today. We learned this. We learned to retell the story. Retell the story. So important. Uh, number two is what is the story? You're going to see the order of it, which is key. What is the story? What's the message behind the story? Uh, then we're look to pray to change the story. Pray to change the story. Don't just be okay with the way the story is, is right now. And then lastly, we're going to look at the story of stories. All right, so let's just talk through this really quick. Retell the story. What do we learn from Nehemiah 9? We learn to retell the story. It is so important to retell the stories. Anything we've, we see in Scripture, to tell them to our kids— our friends, our neighbors, our family members. It is so key to retell the story. And the question is why? Why should we retell the story over and over again? Why do we see the same story told in Psalm 78 and Acts 13? Why? Why are we retelling the stories over and over again? Here's why. Stories shape us. Stories shape us. Stories form us. Stories make us who we are. And I know you guys know this, and I, this is not just a simple thing I want to pass over. We, we call these, in a sense, different narratives. There are different narratives in life that we hear that shape who we are today. 
there's a bit, maybe that's a buzzword you maybe heard a lot used, it, but it's a really beautiful thought is this, like what story, what narrative of life are you believing? I want you to think about what shapes your worldview when it comes to evil and pain and suffering. What narrative are you believing when it comes to just creation, how we got here? What story are you believing when it comes to meaning and morality and ultimately our destiny? Like everyone has a narrative that shapes who they are. And we need to look and ask ourselves, what story are we telling ourselves? What false narratives are we maybe believing? Even in the church, is there some false narratives kind of being intertwined? Like the idea of just for us, maybe the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of the American dream. Maybe you're believing this false narrative like just I'm the victim. No one understands me. No one gets me. No one can relate to me. Everyone's against me. We do tell ourselves different stories all the time, and they shape who we are. And why should we retell stories? Because that shapes who we are in a God-centered way. You see, we retell stories because it makes us who we are. It's so important. I tell stories to my son because it shapes who he is and how he views God, how he views himself, how he views sin. Stories just shape everything. But not only that, listen, why do we retell stories? Because we need to remember. It's important we remember stories. It's important we remember our past and our history and our fathers and our great father. It's important to remember these things. You know, in Acts chapter 7, there's a guy named Stephen. He's a deacon. He's the first person to be killed for his faith in Jesus. First person, follower of Jesus, who's actually murdered for believing and preaching Jesus. And if you read it, and you can go back and read it, in Acts chapter 7, he does the same thing. It's a very similar story. Read Acts 7. He's literally saying, let me talk to you about creation and Moses and Abraham. Let me walk through our, our, the Jewish people, our history. And he ends the story by saying this. In Acts 7 verse 51, here's what he says. He says something very similar. You stiff-necked people. He's a Jew talking to Jews. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. This is what Nehemiah is saying. Nehemiah is saying the same thing. He goes, you're stiff-necked. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, time and time again is speaking to us, and you always resist, as your fathers did, their fathers did, you're constantly resisting the Holy Spirit. And he's retelling the story to say we need to change the story. The story's been written this way for so long, but we want to break that story. We want to change the story of our fathers. That's what this prayer is. That's what this confession is. They're retelling the story to say, no more. No more. Retell the story. Why? We need to remember we need to remember. Now let's move on. What is the story? All right, number two. What is the story that's being told here? So I want to look at, first and foremost, the order of Nehemiah 9. Because there really is like a systematic order and flow to the story. I don't know if you kind of caught that, um, but there's like this flow to the story. So we'll put up the different sections here. I'll break it down for you really quick. So here's like the summary of Nehemiah 9. Uh, for number two is what is the story of the order? So first we see the creation, verse 6, creation. He moves to Abraham. Then he talks about the exodus. He talks about the great departure from slavery and being in the wilderness. Then he talks about Joshua and the promised land. Then he talks about judges and different people who came to save them, help them, redeem them, guide them, the judges. Then he talks about the prophets they killed. And ultimately, the prophets they killed is why they ended up in exile, why they ended up in slavery. And then there's a prayer to change this. So I'm putting this up here. One, because we need to walk through this really quick. There's a systematic flow, and I'm sure you saw that to this prayer. Like, it's beautiful. Creation, Abraham, Exodus, Joshua. Like, he's walking through this brilliantly. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. Every time he brings up a new person or a new incident, wilderness, judges, whatever he brings up, he's teaching us something about God. He's saying, look at creation. This is what it shows us about God. 
So let's walk through this really quick, all right? So first and foremost, creation. Verse 6, let's read it again. Can we read verse 6 again specifically? Verse 6, what does he say? He says, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. He starts off by talking about creation. Here's what he shows us. First and foremost, God. He says, God creates. God creates. God is the maker. God is the creator, the author, designer. God is the one who orchestrates all of this. What does that teach us about God? That teaches this. That teaches us this, that you and I are made by God. We are image bearers of God. Everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room has value, and they have intrinsic value. See, there's something that you maybe you've heard these terms of intrinsic value versus ascribed value. We do, I, th- I really believe, we, we want intrinsic value as a culture, but I think we live by ascribed value, meaning this person makes a lot of money, therefore they just are better for society. They're just, we, we give a lot of value to them. This person's homeless, we don't give a lot of value to them. Here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible says everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone has just innate value to them, not because of what they do or what they don't do, but because they're simply image bearers of God. This is beautiful. If there's no God, I don't know how you can even believe in intrinsic value. I think, there's, I think the idea of God shows you and I that you and I have deep value and deep meaning because we're made in the image of God. And he says, God creates. God orchestrated all of this. You have meaning, you have value. Hey, since God designed it, God can write the rule book. Since God designed it, God can say, here's how you should live and here's how you shouldn't live. I have a you know, iPhone, like probably most of you, if my phone's broken, I take it to a Mac store. Why? Because they, in a sense, like they're the people who designed it. They're the people who made it. The point I want to point out is we kind of live in this weird culture of like self-discovery, self-reliance. You create your own identity. You create your own meaning. But the reality is if I'm created, I'm created by someone. I'm created for some reason. I need to discover that reason in him. He He gives me value. He gives me an identity. He applies that to me. I don't get to make that up myself. I have to go to him and say, what am I here for? Why have you made? You're the creator. You're the author. You're the designer. Not only that, but verse six is really interesting. Do you notice how it says he preserves them all? So here's the idea. It's literally a better translation is sustains. He sustains them all. So here's the idea. God doesn't just create. God sustains. Write down God sustains. This goes against deism, which the idea is that God just created everything and kind of backed off. God created everything, everything we needed, and kind of just let it it kind of play out and unfold the way it just plays out and unfolds. No, he's like, I sustain. I preserve you all. I'm in the middle of it. I I care deeply about the day-to-day. I'm not just, I didn't just create things and leave. I care about the moment you're in right now. I preserve you. I sustain you. And I think the issue for us is we get so fixed on the creation, we miss out on the creator. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We begin to worship what's around us rather than the creator. That's what this guy named St. Augustine, he said that this way, and I thought it was good. He says, thus does the world forget you, its creator, and falls in love with what you've created instead of with you. God creates, God makes, God sustains. And this is, what, this is how their prayer begins. And then they move on to Abram, or Abraham. And here's what we see from Abram and Abraham. I'm not going to go into this super in depth, but here's what we see with Abram. He's like, God, so they're praying, right? God, you made a covenant with him. And here's the word I want to use. It's kind of weird, but God covenants, meaning God longs to just be with you. God longs to know you. God longs to live in relationship with you. 
God covenanted with Abraham. We're going to talk about this word and this idea a lot more next week in chapter 10, so I want to kind of hold off. There's so much I want to say. But the next says, God, God, you, you seek us. You love us. God didn't just call out Abraham because he loved him more than everyone else. The idea was he was to use Abraham to reach the world, to be a light to the rest of the world. But God longs to be with the covenants. Move on. He goes from creation to Abraham. What does he move on to next? The Exodus in the wilderness. And this is a little bit longer. He talks about the different miracles. He talks about God delivered them and freed them. And, and here's what we see. God redeems. You know what they're doing in this prayer? They're just trying to describe God in different ways. They're in God, you created everything. God, you made a covenant with us. You love us. God, even when we turn our backs and we end up in slavery, you still sought us and you redeemed us. Now, redeemed is not just like a synonym for saved. It, it, it's similar, but it's not. Here's what redeemed means really quick. Redeemed is to be set free at a price at a cost of another. If you remember the story of the Exodus, it's the last plague coming upon Egypt saying, either the firstborn son dies or a lamb dies. Something's going to die. Either you kill the lamb or your son's going to die. And this idea that the nation of Israel, they killed the lamb, they applied the blood to a doorpost and God redeemed them at a price. It, it took, a, in a sense, a life for them to be redeemed. And we see that Jesus, who is God's son, who is the Lamb of God, he died at a price to redeem us, to set us free. It costs something. Redemption's never free. It always costs someone something. And this is what they're thanking God for, that God redeemed us. And then they describe the wilderness. And the, the wilderness, if, that's just so much of the Old Testament in the beginning, like Exodus and Numbers, you read about their just stories in the Old Testament. They're complaining, they're whining. God's providing manna from heaven, water from rocks, like doing miracle after miracle, but they keep complaining. And here's what they're bringing up. If you remember in this section, we just read it, he basically says, God, despite our complaint, despite our wickedness, you provided, God provides. God provides. God provides in the midst of their wicked heart and their rebellion. God was so good. I think that many of us do need reminded that God loves to provide for his people. God loves to provide for his own. God's providing for them. God redeemed them. Next, he moves from Exodus to Joshua. He moves into this idea of the promised land. Uh, if you would look at verse with Joshua, verse 25. Verse 25. Because here we just see them now leaving the promised land or leaving the wilderness, entering the promised land. And it says, and they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Here's the idea of the promised land. God satisfies. God satisfies. It's not just he, he provided for them. Thank you, God, for that. Not just he redeemed them. That's more than enough. But God's like, I satisfied you. I brought you into the land of promise. And here's, I think, what we got to learn, even as a church, you guys, it's not so much about what God gives us. It's not so much about the gifts God gives us, but it's about the giver of those gifts. God's like, I satisfy you. I meet your need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Sometimes we seek the hand of God, and God's like, just seek me. Seek me. I'm, don't seek the gift. Seek the giver. God satisfies. He's like, I brought you into this. I'm faithfulness. See, what they're doing in this prayer is they're walking through their history because they don't want to forget who God is and what he's like. So let's just remember, God's the creator. God's the maker. God's the sustainer. God's the redeemer. God's the provider. God satisfies. And he moves from Joshua now to, to Judges. Uh, look at verse 27. So we see the Judges and Prophets. Verse 27 says this, You heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. 
The idea of judges was there's different people who came to kind of help lead the people, guide the people. They didn't have a king. Uh, that was like a pagan thing. That there was not supposed to be this idea of a king. They had judges to help kind of rule the land. And here's the idea of these judges, these deliverers. God's like, you needed people to rescue and save you, and I heard you. God hears. See, judges shows us that God hears. I see your need. I hear it. I hear your need. And I'm going to send you the deliverer at the right moment, the right time. It's a foreshadow of the great deliverer he would send ultimately, once and for all. God hears. So he goes to judges, and he goes to some of these prophets as well, but then he moves specifically to the prophets and to their exile. And verse 30, speaking of the prophets, look at verse 30. It says, you had patience with them, and you testified, you warned against them by your spirit in your prophets. So now he goes, time and time again, they rebelled against you. And so you sent prophets to warn them. And here really is a beautiful idea as well. God warns us. God warns. God warns. God says, I love you so much. You're going down a path that's destructive. It's going to hurt you. I need to send someone your way to speak into you so you don't end up ruining your life. God warns. Let me ask you, do you have anyone in your life who warns you? Do you have anyone who comes in your life and says, I love you, but you're on a destructive path right now and you need to kind of wake up to where you're at? God's like, I love you. I've sent prophets to you to warn you, to wake you up out of my love. And I'll just provide and satisfy. I'll also instruct and guide you by my spirit. And I'll send people in your life to do this as well. And we see this idea of the prophets. And then we see this rebellion, 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 and it ends up in exile. And that's why verse 32 through 38, we see this confession for change. And here's why I bring this up. Because I want you to kind of see Nehemiah 9 as a whole. They're systematically working through their history to say, God, you save, you redeem, you sustain, you create, you're every, God, you're everything. And we forgot this. And we repent. And we want change. So here's the third point today. Uh, what's the story technically being said here? What's the story? What's the message? Here's the message today. Ready? The message today in chapter 9. I don't know if you caught this. We are extremely evil and God is exceptionally good. All right. I just saw that's a little heavy-handed. No, not at all. Uh, we are extremely evil, and God is exceptionally good. I don't know if you did the whole circle, and you kind of like did the rectangle thing around each thing. It's like, God, you're good. You're good. We're evil. We're evil. I, I want us to really talk through this and see through this. I, I don't know if we even appreciate how wicked our hearts are. <laughs> um, we do need to see this. There's a really interesting verse to me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you, and we'll throw it up here. Uh, here's this verse. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, here's the idea. I can't even live up to the standard I create for others. That's what he's saying. The standard I put on others, I find myself condemned in. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in Jesus and you don't believe in the law, you don't believe in the commandments, regardless, you create a standard to live by and you place it on others and you can't even live up to your own standards. You are without excuse, even with your own standards. How many times have we said or thought they shouldn't have, they ought to do, they shouldn't have done? We create standards and then we can't even live by our own standards. So even without the law of God, Romans 2 is saying, even if you didn't have God's book, even if you didn't have God's law, you are without excuse because you came and live up to your own standards. So the idea is, as Jeremiah 17 says, my heart is just deceitfully wicked above all, just above everything. See, the story they're telling in Nehemiah 9 is, God, we are incredibly evil people. And until we understand that, we'll never appreciate the goodness of God. Until we see, until I see how broken I am, how broken my heart is, 
how wicked and bent for sin my heart is. I'll never truly, I think, repent and experience like what full repentance has to offer. Because what are we repenting of? What do we, what do we, I don't really see that. I'm not, I'm a pretty good person. And the Bible says, you came to live to your own standards that you create for other people. See, here's some of the words that's used in Nehemiah 9. Can we just put them, we'll put them up here so you can just read them with me. Here's some of the words. He says, you're presumptuous. This is either implicitly or explicitly said. You're presumptuous, stiff-necked, idolatrous, blasphemous, fat, <laughs> sorry, rebellious, murderers. He says you're murderers. You're disobedient, you're lazy, you're proud, you're evil. Happy Sunday. God bless you. I love you guys. This, this is something that, you know, we don't like put on your resume like, hey, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm an evil person. I'm pretty lazy. Like, this is not something we like boast in or talk about, but this is just fully true. This is something we have to just, we have to come to, get, come to grips with. See, this is not just mere confession of sin. They're really owning this. It's like, God, we are, we are this. It's our fault. It's, we're this. We're this. We've, we've been this. We've done this. It's not that, it's just like my whole nature, everything about me, God. I'm just, I'm just born into sin. It corrupts every part of me. My mind, my heart, my motives, everything is just corrupted. And then here's what they're doing. And, and here's what I want us to see, you guys. They are, they're not minimizing their sin. They're actually making much of God. The thing I think that for us, that what we can do in culture, in social media, and what we love to do, we love to like maximize ourselves. And I think in doing so, we kind of minimize God. And, and I think we kind of miss the point. They're, they're not minimizing their sin for a moment. They're like, they're saying, look, at this is who we are. Everything, I'm gonna show you everything I am. And, and this is so key to confession. This is so key to the prayer. They're going, look at, our, look at our hearts. And now here's what we see. Number two, though, is God is exceptionally good. This is the message. If you haven't gotten this, like Nehemiah 9, and I don't know if you circled and circled and circled and circled, but it's like God is exceptionally good. God is beyond good. He says God, you, he says you, 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 God, over 50 times. God is the center of the story. God is the hero of the story. God is the focus of the story. It's not even just their sin that's the focus. It's saying, God, compared to you, obviously, we're sinful, but you are so good. You're gracious. You're mighty. This is Old Testament. When people are like, the God of the New Testament, Old Testament, are crazy different. I'm like, have you read Nehemiah 9? Like, have you read some of these passages that say, God, great, you're gracious. You're mighty. You're great. You're wonderful. You're all of these things. You're all these things, God. God is the hero of Nehemiah 9. Even in our rebellious heart, you pursued us. You kept your end of the covenant, even though we didn't keep ours. And they're just constantly focused on the goodness of God. Let's just walk through some of these statements really quick, because this is even better. The goodness of God statements. Here we go. This is what they say. They say, there's one God. You're greater, the sustainer, the covenant maker. You're righteous. You're miraculous. You're glorious. You're judge. You're the provider. You're the leader, the lawgiver, gracious, forgiving, abounding, teacher, giver of our children, builder of our homes, chastiser of our sins, sender of our saviors, great, mighty, awesome, perfect. This is what they're describing about God. Amen? Is God not all these things and more? Amen? This is what they're saying. We're extremely wicked. God, you're good. God, God, God. And they're just focused on him. They're bringing the presence of God. They're bringing the goodness of God into their lives. This is so important because Romans 2, what I just quoted earlier, verse 4 says, don't you know it's supposed to be the goodness of God that led you to repentance? Don't you know that it's supposed to be as you look at God and how good and how great he is, that would bring your heart to just melt? Say, God, you're so good and I'm so not good. You see, the, the very issue with men from the very beginning of time is what? It's been questioning God's goodness. The very beginning, our hearts are so just bent towards selfishness that from the very beginning, the first thing we do is we question God's goodness. When Satan comes to God and says, did God really say? You see, I want you to think about the garden really quick. The garden is this. We'll put up the little phrase. The garden is God saying, I am good. The tree is bad. Trust me. 
All right, <laughs> simply put, I'm good, the tree's bad, just, just trust me. Satan comes along and says, uh, God is bad, the tree is good, trust me. <laughs> and this is what's being communicated. There's this idea even today of people questioning, obviously, God's goodness in this. And this has really been the issue with man since the beginning. See, God's like, don't you know it's supposed to be my goodness that led your repentance? And then Romans 2 forces, but now it's going to have to be my wrath. Because you didn't see the goodness. The, the idea is I want us to see the goodness of God. I want us to learn from what they're doing. They're saying, God, we're making much of you and little of ourselves. We're going to make much, much of you in this moment and very little of ourselves. Uh, verse 10 might be one of the keys of the message. If you look at verse 10, like the last phrase, look down at verse 10, look down at verse 10. What does it say in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10? The, the end, it says this. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. Here's the message you could say. God has made a name for himself. As it is this day, that's Nehemiah's day, that's our day. God has made a name for himself. God, just looking at you, reading about you, you've made a great name for yourself. God, you, you are the focus, you are the center, you're what it's all about. And so here's what's happening. Number four is this. Lastly, we see there's a prayer to change the story. Again, this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And this prayer of walking through their history, do not see what they're doing. They're saying, God, this is what our, fa- our father sins and our father's father sins. This is now on us. We've done the same things. And what they're doing is they're praying to change the story. I know that this has been our generational kind of sin and carrying on and on and on, but God, today we're asking to break that, this moment. And this is so good. And this is so key. You see, I do hope and pray that my son, as he grows up, I know that he'll be like, I, I love my dad. My dad loved Jesus, but my dad was a sinner. My dad is best to pursue Jesus, but there's a lot of areas in his life that he could have been better. I hope he learns from my mistakes. I hope there's a sense of still honor, but there's still a sense of, yeah, but I want to learn from that. I want to grow from that. So here's what I'm trying to point out. I think what we, we do too much and t- too often is we talk to people about, yeah, but I just grew up in a home where just yelling was normal and fighting was normal. And so that's just what I do. And like, we know the sin of our fathers. We know the sin of it, but we just use it as an excuse rather than repentance. Like, okay, so I know that I just grew in a family that never showed love or affection. I know I grew up in a family that wanted nothing to do with God. This, but this is why I am who I am today. So we, we kind of use it to excuse how we are today rather than say, I'm going to own that. I'm going to repent of it right now. I'm going to say, this is going to end today. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, right, we know our fathers have turned their back time and time, but we are making a covenant with you, God. This is going to be different. Do you see that's the ending? Verse 38 is this introduction of a covenant. Verse 38 leads us into chapter 10, which we're going to talk about. This covenant now with God of saying things are going to change. We're going to honor the covenant we once had with you, God. Guys, listen, please listen to this. There's not just points. There needs to be a prayer to change the story. There needs to be some prayer in our lives to say, God, I know that this has been our family's history. I know that I'm prone to this. I know I've seen this. I know this is my culture. This is my family. This is what I'm just used to. But God, today in this moment, I'm, rep- I'm owning this. I'm saying this is me. It's not their fault. This, they've been a part of it. Like, but I'm going to own this as if I've been the one doing it. Because I am, I am the one doing it. And there's just this complete ownership and repentance. Again, there are things I do believe. I hope my son can learn from and grow from. My daughter can learn from and grow from those things they've seen. Yes, he loved Jesus, but here, but here's where he could have been more generous or more like Jesus. And, you know, I want to own that. I want to, like, even for those of you who grew up in a great family, family that loves, there's still things that, God, how can I own this and grow in this? And what does he want to show me and teach me in the midst of this? And they're owning this. And this is a prayer to change. It's a beautiful prayer. Again, there's sometimes, remember Nehemiah? We talked about Nehemiah prayers. Remember those prayers where he's like, God, give me strength. God, strengthen our hands. Those like five word prayers. We like looked at those. This is like, no, no, no. This is going to take more time. There's prayers we need to pray. Like in the, in the moment we're driving, like, God, help me not 
drive my car into this car because I'm so angry. Like, there's, there's little prayers we need, but then sometimes those prayers we need to, like, God, I need to spend some time with you over this. Because the roots go so deep, it's going to take a little more time. I need to talk this over with you. And there's this prayer to change. And here's what we see lastly. They're looking at the story, but there is the story of stories. And I know you guys know this, but please never forget this. All stories point to a greater story. All stories are about a better story. Nehemiah is in exile, going to leaving, leaving that to rebuild a city. Jesus, the greater than Nehemiah, would come and, ex- and, and end exile by one day and by currently building a new city. There's this idea that all these stories are pointing ultimately, obviously, to Jesus that we have to acknowledge. We see the story of stories. Can I point out verse 31 to you? If you would just look at verse 31, we'll just close with this verse. They're confessing their sin over and over. And look at verse 31. Nevertheless, just I, I don't know, circle that a million times. Nevertheless, God, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God gracious and merciful. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of God. God, time and time again, you've been so good, so gracious. Thank you, God. I want to I appreciate this. I want to take this. I want the grace of God that brings salvation to teach me to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we might live righteously, soberly, and godly in the present age. Amen? Is that grace should teach and transform us. And this is what they're, they're going, God, we're looking at your grace to transform us in this moment. Not, we're not looking at your grace to kind of perpetuate, oh, God's gracious, I'll just continue doing what I've been doing. No, we're looking at your grace to transform us. We're looking at your grace to completely change us. Grace is not an excuse for me just to keep perpetuating what I've always been doing. Grace is a reason for me to, be, to teach me, to make me more like Jesus, as Titus 2, 11, 13 says, that we might become more righteous, godly, and sober-minded in the present age. That is the desire to be more like, let grace transform, let grace teach us, not perpetuate it. You know, John Piper, writing about Nehemiah 9, he said this, biblical stories, listen, biblical stories exist for the sake of our enjoying God. There is a point to the story. Refer to Nehemiah 9. There's a point to the story. There's a point to the narrative. And the point is a person. There's the point. This idea of grace and mercy, when, when John writes about Jesus, we go, we beheld him full of grace, full of truth. He was grace incarnate. He was truth made flesh. Jesus is exactly, the, the hope, this concept of grace and mercy, it became tangible to us in the person of Jesus. You see, all of this is pointing to a greater story of God's grace and God's mercy found in the person of Jesus. And you and I constantly need to go back to that story. You and I constantly need to go back to the story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he says, what he declares about us, how the work of sin being paid for is finished, how Jesus rose again conquering sin and hell and death. And we constantly preach that story to ourselves. We're constantly reminding ourselves of the story of Jesus, who is grace made flesh. Amen. I love what one author, writer said, his name is Leslie Newbegin. He said this, the business of the church is to tell and embody a story. When we talk about retelling stories, let's retell this story. The business of the church is we are telling a story. We are saying there's a historical event where a man named Jesus lived a sinless life. Even his accusers said he lived a sinless life and he died an innocent death on behalf of others. And three days later, he rose again and people saw him and they gave their lives for that truth and that forever changed history. And we are here to embody that story and tell that story. That is why the church exists. Amen? We're gonna pray. We're gonna worship Jesus. We're gonna thank him for the greatest story of all 
found in him. So let's pray and let's worship and we'll close, our t- close out our time with just some closing announcements and thoughts. Father, we're just um, so thankful for this story that God, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. That you cannot deny who you are. God, we are extremely evil and you are exceptionally good. Thank you. Just thank you for that truth, God. Thank you for those truths. Let it just register. Let us keep it, keep us humble. Keep us just in need, just in desperate need for you, Jesus, to always retell the story to our kids, to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, that we have the greatest story ever written, ever told, written before the foundation of the world, and that is found in you, Jesus. So we thank you. We praise you. Uh, we just even now, as we sing to you, just want to sing this story. I want to praise you, God, in your wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand and just close our time with some worship.